1: It's like all the people who can afford a country club but don't get in one can now play pickleball, and like that's their what they're substituting it with. So you're describing yourself.
0: I hope you.
1: What is up, everybody? This is Michael Zakan, co-founder of Our Future. I'm joined by my co-host and the other half of our future, Simi Sandu. We sold our company to Morning Brew in January, and now we study other young, successful founders and make their playbook available for all of you to learn from. So are you pumped for today's episode, Simi? I feel like we have some good case studies going on.
0: I'm stoked. And for our first remote episode, I mean, let's make it the best one yet. I want to start off the show by talking about two 22-year-olds who've raised $5 million to help you throw your next paid event Avante Price and Eli Taylor Lemier are the founders of a company called Posh. And I love what these guys are doing, and they have a really cool background, too. So Avante was a DJ in New York, and he ends up doing a lot of these shows. He's pretty involved in in kind of the night scene in New York. Um, And Eli was a videographer for local rappers. And so Eli was trying to become a DJ as well. He ends up hitting up Avante and kind of exchanges him a photo shoot to kind of get him involved in the DJ scene. Um, These two hit it off and they decide that they're going to try to build an events platform. So their first idea for Posh was to actually build this upscale, classy events platform for college students. They ended up hosting seven or eight different events, but they hit a really interesting inflection point during COVID where they realized that the incumbents in the event space, like Eventbrite, actually weren't all that strong because they had decreased quite a bit in market share. And so they decided that they're going to be the guys to come in and be the young trailblazers and do something really cool. So like I said, they raised $5 million. They've had over a million people actually create accounts on Posh. And what's really cool on this in the numbers side is the average paid event on Posh is $4,300. So so you as an event organizer could actually make over 50 grand
1: a year just throwing events on Posh, which I think was pretty cool. I think Eventbrite was a company ripe for disruption before the pandemic. But it just so happened that these two college kids were in prime position to build a new product while there was a live events lull. It was like, None of this is happening. It's a great time to build, right? Like there are some huge companies started in a recession. DoorDash, Airbnb, um, you know, that original Y Combinator cohort that went and, you know, stole the world's digital market share, right? Yeah. So, yeah. they looked at it as an event's recession and they built the the right tools and the right platform uh for live event hosts. So, what I think is interesting is These guys are coming in above Partiful, which is maybe a 20, 30 person birthday party, um, you know, a pregame at your apartment and then below Ticketmaster, right, where you've got Taylor Swift selling out every stadium in America and Drake's coming to perform. So they're taking this really nice middle market, right, of event hosters that are still generating thousands of dollars per event. Think uh, smaller stage concerts, uh, smaller venues. Um, nightclubs, things like that. And it's a, it's a really good chunk of change in that market. Um, and they've attacked it and they're really owning the space with a really good tech product that they've been able to you know scale really well and organically through uh, a low cost of customer acquisition through the inherent virality of doing an events business. And I just wanna to touch on what you said before about the 50,000 that like these people can make per year extra just by hosting a monthly event. Like They're trying to create a new economy here. And that's what I yeah. think is most interesting. I love the founders we talk to, man. Like, they're always pulling out analogies of massive businesses that they're likening themselves to. And it just makes their pitch seem so much bigger and so much the market opportunity so much more, more fertile. So they were throwing out Airbnb and they were throwing out um, Turo, right? If you can kind of create a new business for yourself based on assets you own, such as your home or your car... Why can't you do that with your social circles and your connections to put on awesome events?
0: Totally. And I think looking at these guys, they had a background in trying to create startups that had some affiliation to the gig economy. So this is like an extension of that, but like on steroids, because like this paid events platform is just like the first entry point into like this whole ecosystem they're trying to build. But I want to double dive into the distinction, right? Because Posh and Partiful, I feel like they often just get lumped together. And I didn't truly understand like or or actually give it the real appreciation like these guys deserve because when you're thinking paid events, regardless of the number of people who attend, that's posh. Where I think like Partiful's entry point has just been, hey, let's just make it fun. Let's make it a cool, like vibrant UI that's really right. buzzy with Gen Z. And we're just gonna focus on growth first. My personal preference is I like how the guys at Posh went about this, which is they raised a quarter of the amount of money that Partiful has and they figured out the monetization point first, which like going back to our last episode with FanFix, like that's what those guys started with too, right? Like they figured out monetization and then the growth was something they were able to figure out
1: later. Yeah, I think there's something to be said for Partiful and Posh targeting a new customer demographic. Yeah. You know, there, were, there wasn't an events platform for young Gen Z mobile friendly uh, people. So if totally. you look at a, if you look at this photo from Posh's website it essentially compares all the different events platforms and Partiful and Posh are the only two companies that allow unlimited SMS sending. Now the reason for that is you know young people do not RSVP to RSVP'd events on their computer, right? It's all mobile first and they were able to come into this market brand themselves as uh you know this cool party planning kind of little more exclusive and focused on the the ticketed side of things. And resonate with a new audience. I mean, what kind of nightclub that thinks they have, you know, any kind of social status or, you know, any kind of cool, you know, musician right. who wants to put their shit on Eventbrite? Like, that exactly. is such a buzzkill. Like, I, I just feels like a boomer company. And they came in and they they Gen Z, Gen Zified the whole thing.
0: Well, you know, like to their credit, they're making a lot of money from boomers, right? Like that—that that is why Eventbrite is a billion dollar company. So there's a lot to their business model. But before we jump into how these guys are making money, I also want to talk about like their big play here, right? Again, they're trying to build the ecosystem for paid events. So like these guys' North Star is like trying to create like the most seamless experience for like essentially building an entire vertical SaaS model within Posh, right? So you can actually use Posh to uh, find a videographer, find a DJ, uh, find a venue. And I thought this was really interesting, right? Like all the different things on their product roadmap that they're trying to hit. And like, if you can go to Posh and you can get everything you need for an event, even
1: to the caterer, like how cool would that be? Yeah, man. Um, I I love this because when you're planning an event, it's such a headache to independently call local establishments because remember that for event staff, it's still a very localized business, right? Like you have to find someone in your city. You need to go and pick up the speakers. um, You need a local security guard to run the list, right? There's a lot of upsells on top of like just hosting an event. There's a lot of costs that go into it that aren't being absorbed by any of the ticketing platforms. And that's what they're trying to do is to become the vertical play. If posh becomes huge dude, it might be kind of smart to like set up a some kind of supply business for photographers or for speakers or other kind of event needs or you know, any like anything catering that totally. specifically yeah. goes to posh. It's like it's, yeah. it's it reminds me of like ghost kitchens on Uber Eats, right? Like you find a platform that's becoming like the norm and then you build a business. It's like Airbnb management companies, right? they're building a new economy here and that's their big big uh, hairy vision that they're trying to trying to get towards so kudos to them for all the insane features that they're doing with with posh do you think that they're trying to do too much like they have so many features on their their platform it's hard to say
0: because from one side like we talk a lot about how important it is to be focused But everything they're building has synergies to the core thing, right? Like it's not like they're trying to do something that like has no parallels to their core business. So I think like what is the primary metric that they're probably uh, gauging the success of Posh is like how many people can they get to sign up and create an event on Posh? And how often are they coming back to create and host more events using the platform? And my hunch is, is that if they can create more products or more things that someone can lean into when using their platform, that's only going to keep them coming back. Like if it's all, it's, if it's all there and it's this all-in-one platform, like why would I go anywhere else?
1: Yeah, they're, they're doing a great job of rewarding that consistency. They have a rewards program. It's like get your favorite bottle of, of alcohol or come and meet the posh team or fly here or fly there, right? So like they're treating their million milers essentially like Delta, like they have their DJs. They're million yeah. event throwers, right? And they have. Yeah, they're gonna buy it. They're gonna buy a Tesla Model X for whoever reaches <laughs> ten million. I think in GMV first. So, kind of a big opportunity on the table there. Dude, what we well, were we were just talking to someone who was telling
0: us how like, as old as these things have been, like referrals and giveaways will always crush. We talk about this a lot in the newsletter and media space about how people use referrals, and now like Beehive is trying to create like this referral system. Um, but I think like people do this because it works. And so what you're talking about is this new product that they're coming out, or like new part in their business called Kickback. So the idea is like um, again, kind of playing into this like Noah Tucker model that we talked about last week. You mean, you
1: mean week. the MLM model? <laughs> if you're not taking a marketing tactic from Herbalife, then you're not a venture back founder,
0: <laughs> well, hey, I mean, I mean, like ethics aside, I don't even think it's necessarily an issue here, but like it's effective, right? Like the fact that if I have a positive experience, if I can make a buck or two, like just sharing
1: this with other people so they come join Posh, like why would you not do this? New economy, bro. They're building a new economy for yeah, event organizers and participants alike. So, Yeah, it's kind of cool. Like you can use Posh to monetize, like your social life, right? And it can be used for a lot more than nightlife and concerts. It has that vibe, right? Like Posh VIP. It's very much like backdoor to the nightclub type feel. But they also want to expand into more like non kind of uh, nightlife events and stuff. So they're they're trying to break out of that box. But yeah, man, it's interesting. I feel like a lot of the consumer companies that we've talked about on this show, they all had a super low CAC, like. Uh, FanFix, this company because it's so shareable. Line Leap as well because the bars were the ones that distributed it and like gave yeah. them the, the like you know like it's it's almost like um, these consumer companies they're just B two B companies disguised as as consumerized companies and I feel like that's the best place to be right where businesses use your product and then distribute it out to the people that they're trying to reach because totally. if you're trying to, if you're yeah. trying to do the distribution it's just so expensive right and that's why many consumer companies don't make it is because marketing eats too much of their their profit margins. Did you think what
0: he said around like the ideal size for events to be really interesting? Because going back to the Ticketmaster thing, that was kind of like an interesting insight that I was not aware about. Like the fact that they yeah. not only have built these monopolies, but like they're in these like exclusive deals with big venues. And like, it's right. hard to crack into those like really large, like multi, you know, hundreds of thousands or thousands of people events um because like they've already locked in big deals
1: and so yeah. they kind of
0: have to to kind of focus on this market.
1: Yeah, with the Taylor Swift stuff, people are really angry at Ticketmaster. And yeah. what Ticketmaster does is they pay these venues, say Madison Square Garden for example, tens of millions a year to be their exclusive ticketing partner because they know how much traffic is going to those venues, right? There's only a few yeah. amazing venues per city, right? So then Ticketmaster has to charge these extra processing fees, these junk fees, all this other stuff. And because they have have the capital to be doing these exclusive deals, they've become less innovative. So their technology is also kind of crappy. So it's left a lot of people on online queues and not being able to get their tickets and stuff. And that's why the government is like investigating them as a monopoly is because no one's been able to break into those markets because of those relationships with the biggest venues where all the biggest stars go. So yeah. interesting case study there. Uh, just a quick economics lesson on on Ticketmaster, but uh, <laughs> I think it's smart. I don't think those guys will ever be get into that space, but they found a nice real niche right in the middle market. Right, it's like if uh, you know uh, Ticketmaster is Salesforce, like their HubSpot, right? So yeah. they're existing in the middle.
0: Yeah, I think there's no doubt these guys are going to be really, really successful. I also like their business model. It's sort of a hybrid model that they're leaning into. They charge attendees a processing fee of 10% and then 99 cents a ticket on top of the price determined by the organizer
1: of each event. One thing I've been thinking about with this platform though is like a potential issue, right? So imagine like the liability, right? Like FireFest was a nightmare and maybe the ticketing platform might be on the hook, right? In some of these instances, there's also elements of like, there's crowd crushes that happen. There's a lot of liability events. You know, remember the famous Rolling Stones concert where the the Hells Angel security guard that was hired killed somebody. So I think liability is actually one thing that might be a challenge to this business. And also events are just so hard to plan that if the tech fails or there's a bug, like it could cause a massive public relations nightmare where people don't trust using Posh to get their tickets. Like imagine if there was some error and your ticket wasn't scanning and you didn't get into the concert or the event, right? Like there actually is a lot of, expectation with the user and this like massive event style platform. So I'd say that's one kind of potential issue or thing they're going to have to navigate, right? Because it takes years to build a reputation, five minutes to ruin it before someone will never use your product again if it fails.
0: I think that's fair feedback. I also think that with these guys, they'll probably cover their ass, right? Like if Billy decides to do some crazy shit with Fire Festival too, right? Like I'm for sure like certain <laughs> that. They probably made sure that like none of the liability will come back to bite them in the ass. But again, yeah. like they've they're probably going to be associated with that if something bad were to happen. So that's like yeah. one risk to the business. <laughs> Another thing that like going back to the point of them trying to move out of the nightlife scene, right? Like again, it's called Posh VIP, um, and like that makes sense because they do have to go after <laughs> the boomer segment, right? Like. They will have to focus towards an older demographic, but I wonder like, if that comes at a cost of brand again, right? Like there's yeah. a trade-off there where like, oh, now it's not as cool. It's not as fun anymore. Like it does kind of slowly inch towards Eventbrite again. Right. And like the same people that they're trying to separate themselves is like something they're converging back towards.
1: Okay. Should we jump into
0: entrepreneur number two for the day?
1: Let's do it. So for entrepreneur number two, I have Thomas Shields. So- Thomas was a finance student at his university in Ohio. Um, He went to Miami, Ohio. It wasn't necessarily a big feeder into investment banks, but he was a scrappy guy. So ends up working his ass off to get into a boutique investment bank in Chicago, uh, then works at an investment bank in Detroit. So he gets this banking experience and he tells us he's the worst banker ever, right? Like it just didn't suit him. (laughs) But (laughs) I think a lot of ambitious people realize that banking isn't right for them after they've gone through all the years and all the pain of trying to get there. So I le- I think work. he
0: leans into that background more than he gives himself credit for though and we'll get into that.
1: Yeah, we will. He's a very pragmatic thinker which we can talk about, but um then he is like okay, like maybe you need a career change. Let's get an MBA. Does his GMAT yeah. Um, he hears on My First Million about newsletter business, right? Like you can build a newsletter and sell it for millions of dollars, right? It's uh, Morning Brew popularized the model, so did the hustle, right? So it's like really attractive to the young kid who's like, oh, all I need to do is write an email and I can like build a really solid business. So he's like, you know what? I wasn't a good investment banker, but I was always a good writer and communicator. And I think I could do a newsletter. So his family was a big tennis family. And then they made the religious conversion from tennis into pickleball. So they become obsessed with pickle. And he doesn't really give a crap about the sport, but he sees it as a good niche, right? It's that uh, objective view on things of maybe, like you said, comes from his banking background of just looking at an M&A deal, being like, this is good, this is not. Picks pickleball to be the niche that he writes his newsletter in. At this time, he's applying to business school. And he actually selects UT Austin because he knows Austin's a pickleball hub you know, I'm here right now. I fell in love with the game here in the city as well. So the stars kind of aligned and he just started building. And the only kind of mechanisms for news or information in the space were from like one major Facebook group. And the sport really hadn't taken off. This was 2020, October, 2020, when it started. So it was still a small sport, but big enough probably to have a community and build a business around it. But he had no idea that it would be as big as it is. And I don't think that, he had any idea that Hugh himself would actually come to to really enjoy and love the sport, right? Um, yeah,
0: he fell into a cool opportunity, and then he made the most of it, right? Like, going yeah. back to the fact of how small this sport actually was, like, right. the size of this market consisted of one Pickleball account, and it was US Pickleball. They had 2,000 followers on IG. There was one small Pickleball magazine, and then, again, small Pickleball forums on Reddit and Facebook groups. So, like... Yeah. Again, really, really tiny. But I guess that's the the best place to be, right? Especially if emerging market now, like you can kind of grow with the market and like you can become the de facto leader.
1: Well, let's talk about the newsletter business, right? Like, yeah, I think the window has closed on another one size fits all newsletter, like the Morning Brew or the Skim. This current internet we operate on is just far too compartmentalized and too niche and too verticalized for like one newsletter to attain like millions and millions of subscribers and become a go-to for a broad category like business, news, politics, like it is right now, right? I think the opportunities for newsletters are in the niches. Um, I guess Sean with the Milk Road, that was a big industry like crypto, but he kind of just did it all. But the model's been too popularized because the minute AI became hot, all these mofos on Twitter launched their, their their AI newsletter and it's become too saturated and no one's actually become the market leader in that category, which I think is interesting.
0: Yeah, I partially agree, and then I also partially disagree. I don't think that you can't still go create a successful newsletter. I do think it's capped, though. Like, even the top 10th percentile of, like, newsletters out there you're probably capped at what m- low to mid seven figures like yeah. if you're looking at this pure play as an advertising yeah, business, business yeah yeah as a as a core media business then like recognize like you can only go so far right like this is something you can't raise money for you should not raise money for um and that like you're going to have to come up with like other sh- revenue streams to make the most of it and i think yeah. that's what thomas has done extremely well so he actually has built a pretty interesting little empire here. At the top, his parent company is called Upswing Sports. And then he has all of these subsidiaries and, and media properties and apps and investment firms and all this stuff he's doing. And I think this is kind of interesting. So the Dink is just one of several different properties, but it is the core revenue driver. And I'll let you kind of chime in on like what make up the other parts of his little empire here.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, think about uh, Morning Brew, right? Like our hero yeah. product is the daily, drives a ton of the revenue. And for Thomas, that's the dink. So it's a news media site for Pickleball. It has the breaking news. It really has become the Wall Street Journal of, of Pickleball. And then it has a newsletter with several hundred thousand subscribers. Um, they've got a podcast. Uh, they create YouTube videos. They have short form video. They have you know all the kind of bits and pieces of a media company and the distribution model. But then what Thomas is doing is really interesting. He's doing what very few media entrepreneurs can, which is going from pure play to a diversified non-ad dependent business model. So he's exchanging his distribution in the industry and visibility for stakes in companies. So one is like a pickleball app founded by some like ex Uber guys, Postmates guys. Uh, The other is a pickleball kind of inspired merchandise company, a fashion company started by some... Ah, uh, former like Viore people, something along those lines, and he has stakes in those businesses. So you know that is a you know a potential revenue generating asset for the for the business. And then he's also doing like an in-house product, like a pickleball subscription box, which I think would be really cool. Like my mom would sign up for that shit in an instant. So you know he's going after a good market. I would also say pickleball, like the audience for it, is wealthier and. Has good disposable income as well. So the Like ex
0: tennis players.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Literally country club type shit. Like, yeah, but, exactly. But even a bigger. It's like all the people who can afford a country club but don't get in one can now play pickleball. And like that's their what they're substituting it with. So you're describing good, good yourself. I hope you don't. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't know. I think you'd be pretty trash, Sammy, if you played. So
0: you're probably fair. That's the. The boy couldn't have a single folk. plunger. Yeah.
1: <laughs> couldn't <laughs> hit a single plunger on Labor game. <laughs>
0: Hey, I will say though, like real talk, um, like you are probably, if the dink wasn't around, you'd probably be the perfect person to go start this business. Like in another world, like the dink would have been started by you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I honestly think I would have crushed it, bro. (laughs) I I guess in hindsight, I think I can crush everything. Maybe I just, maybe I'm too overconfident, but I do, I do really, I do really like this company. Um, I want to talk about something that Thomas went through that you and I also dealt with, which is getting into acquisition talks and having too high of hopes. Um, Thomas entered into an acquisition conversation with a company that was going to give him a great deal for buying the dink and was going to, you know, scale it and get the logo in every major pickleball arena and turn it into something big fast. And he was really enamored by it. He said that he Uh, was really all in on the deal. like He felt really lucky about it. He was like, oh my God, I'm going to sell my first company and then they got cold feet and the, the deal didn't happen. The worst thing that can happen to a founder is they get an acquisition offer that drags on and then they stop growing their business and lose motivation as a result, right? Acquisitions can really poison a young entrepreneur's thinking and I know they affected us as well when we were building and luckily we did get the deal to go through. It took a lot longer than we expected but I had really push young entrepreneurs to manage their expectations and respect themselves um, by doing things that mitigate the time it takes for a deal to get done and to really gauge their acquirer's interest? I think there are five
0: different moments that I can think back to really, really clearly and vividly on times we thought the acquisition was going to go through, but it fell apart. And our big issue was like, we were stuck behind a gatekeeper, um, which was like, you need to know who the real decision maker is. like, Correct. And, and that's so important, right? Like you can't get stuck behind the guy who said, hey, I'm going to pitch this to the guy who can make the decision, right? Because like Correct. they hold all the power and the leverage. So like find the decision maker, get in front of them. And then even then do not let it dilute or pollute is probably the better word to use, your yeah. actual strategy and approach. Because I think that like, whether you're looking to bootstrap, whether you're looking to raise money, whatever, keep going down that path until like you have an LOI in front of you, ready to sign, ready to go. Um, and I think unless yeah. you have that, and I think actually in um this specific case, I think Thomas did have an LOI and it still didn't work out, right? So right. like most of these deals just do not close. They fall that's through. Like, most deals yeah. don't
1: happen. That was the it's advice I got from every mentor I called when I was like, I might sell my business. So like, first thing I want yeah. to say to you is like, this deal probably won't close. Yeah. So I think that's important to understand. Um, so what would you say to an entrepreneur? Like we, we we are big proponents of getting your first win. If you can sell your first company as a young person or one of your first companies, you're going to be in such an amazing position uh, in your career, especially it's to a valid acquirer, a well-known acquirer. Um, how can young entrepreneurs balance like, like that strategy of getting acquired with not letting themselves be walked over or letting their expectations run too rampant?
0: I think it just comes down to like, do not stop what you're doing. Like keep building, keep going. It doesn't have to be this binary thing where it's like one or the other. You can do both simultaneously. And like, I'll be honest, I think that's what you and I did wrong. It was very much like we stopped our entire strategy or like we were... So adamant that the deal was going to go through that, like, we started to say, like, bucket to the rest of our product roadmap because we were so bought in that the acquirer would just invest the resources when the time would come and that things would get way easier.
1: Right. Well, let's get back into the media conversation. So, he, so what I think it's really cool to have like a small audience that's really bought into the topic versus because there's two approaches in media, right? You go like niche and passionate or like large and you're just playing a numbers game with eyeballs and then a small percentage converts like what do you think is better like going the morning brew route or going the the dink route for a young entrepreneur i like the strategy of going niche and then building
0: again an ecosystem or a bunch of other high leverage opportunities out of it like thomas is well positioned to like dominate the entire pickleball space even outside of media like that's really really cool um right versus like again if you're more general you're more broad like the best you can do is just like you can become a compelling and like again a successful business but not quite to the same degree like Recognize you're probably gonna have to share that center field with a bunch of different other players. And like that's right. one thing you have to think about too.
1: Yeah, it's also important to talk about focus, right? So right. he focused all in on pickleball, and that's because the industry really took off. But you know, it's so important like he wanted to do like an e-gaming media company and this newsletter or that, right? And it's like just focus on that thing that that's working and growing as opposed to trying to diversify too fast. So I think he's in a much better position because he didn't raise the money when he was having those acquisition conversations. And now he's in a position to just raise money exclusively for pickleball because the category is big enough to, to like build an actual really valuable business in this industry.
0: And again, you can also use your focus in one specific area to then diversify. So, like, what yeah. does that mean in this case? Which is he built the biggest media property in the space, and now that's how he's leveraging actually getting equity in all these different companies is like he's exchanging attention or ad slots for actual equity stakes in these businesses and that's like you kind of get the best of both worlds by doing that approach
1: i know it the the challenge though with that is the challenge with thomas is going to be managing ad inventory that is like equity based and that's cash based because you need cash to grow but he did say he's raising money and you know that's crazy. But I just like, dude, it's crazy what he's been exposed to. He's talked to Gary Vee. He's met Mark Cuban. He's, um, I think he's, he played pickleball with Kevin Durant, right? He is in the center of such a hot industry and he's getting so much opportunity. So if you can find an industry, get in relatively early and then be a part of its growth, you're just going to have so many opportunities with your business and with your personal brand. He's doing commentating. he could be like the Joe Rogan coming from pickleball, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, There's there's a lot of good things ahead for him for sure. But I do want to also talk about like two opportunities that he even mentioned, like a young person listening to this could probably go start, right? Which is, hey, like this advice that, hey, you can go start a newsletter in a certain niche and go take advantage of it is probably something they've heard everywhere. Then the question is, what niche is that? I think like, again, going back to what Thomas said, like cricket is, like, ripe for the taking, right? Like, you already have a billion-plus people who consume that sport as the number one sport in their country, being India, and, again, like, a lot of these Asian and European countries as well. That'll slowly influence its way over to the United States, and I think there's, like, high-profile tech tech leaders and and industry titans who are, like, very much involved in the cricket space. Yeah, Um, I mean...
1: I think yeah. cricket could be. I think cricket could be the next billion-dollar sport in America. And yeah, like you Super said, cool. we're seeing we're seeing Satya Nadella, and, and we're seeing other big tech CEOs fund leagues. And I think it's only a matter of time before the pickleball effect takes root in the cricket sport. We're in an interesting moment in the sports space, like. Yeah. We're seeing so many like non-big four sports come into to vogue. I told you yesterday about my mom's British friends who have moved to this wealthy suburb of Silicon Valley and are going to be coaching American kids as like private tutors, private coaches in soccer. And it's like, oh, Messi's joined into Miami soccer's, soccer's perfect. Become yeah. so much bigger sport in totally. America. The rich parents about to spend that money to get their kid playing on the soccer field and getting into college for it. So let's be I real that too. Like, interesting.
0: yeah. Soccer could be a, a media company just focused on soccer. And I'm sure there's probably quite a bit out there, right? Like that have already tried to build in this space. But that would be way bigger, in yeah. my opinion, than a media company just focused on basketball or football or a yeah. lot of other American sports that like we've been accustomed to. Um, yeah. Another idea that Thomas talked about was like creating a newsletter or media company focused on UFC and boxing. I thought this was a really interesting one, right? Because like yeah, who all that? these...
1: Yeah, I don't know who owns that. What like owns a media company in that space? No, who owns the category for UFC fight news? I I don't even know, but that's yeah. why it's
0: cool, right? Like, I the fact that we can't definitively even think of the person who owns this probably means again there's an opportunity here, um, yeah. and I think the fact that like all these big name creators are now moved over towards like UFC and boxing. And this has become like the the next big thing. Like for some reason you go become a high profile creator and then you go move into boxing, which is like a really interesting trend, but more eyeballs coming into the space. It's emerging. Like, yeah. again, this is and where you will, should be focusing your efforts. There
1: will, there, there always will be a hot new sport just because it's pickleball always. now. It's like an industry where there's always a hot new game that people buy into. I just read about a card game that's blowing up in America. Have you had, did you hear about that on the morning brew in the morning brew today? No, it like this, tell me about this it. card game that originated in China that apparently is like used to help build business acumen, um, is blowing up on like TikTok and stuff. And it's like find activities or games that are blowing up and have staying power and then build like an information product around them or information business and news. So yeah, man, maybe, uh, when, uh, my time's up at, at the brew, then I'll take a look at whatever sports hot and, uh, We'll build another media company targeting that space. (laughs) I'm stoked, man. I know a lot of young people want to build like a newsletter. Um, It's really, do you have the hustle or not? Like there really aren't shortcuts to building an engaged email list. It's a very valuable asset to have, but there's really no shortcuts. There's a lot that goes into it, whether it's just creating the best content in the world for your audience every day, to selling ads, to finding growth hacks, but you know, Thomas mentioned a few things. If you are in the newsletter business and you want to think about it, maybe you already have a newsletter. Giveaways crush it. So it's actually a tactic that he thinks is actually underrated in the newsletter marketing space. Um, you know, you can give people something valuable if you can come up with the cash to fund that giveaway, uh, but you're going to make it back in the LTV of the new subscribers if you already have somewhat of a business. Um, he also talked about building very valuable newsletters. So he, Tom Brady's manager built one custom for tom, a newsletter for tom to stay updated on sports business and now like all the big wigs in the industry follow it and you have to apply to get access to the newsletter. So, I actually think there's also an opportunity for exclusive newsletters for specific informational fields that could be either subscription based or just very very low key and have very high value advertisements to a very small amount of people. Um, totally. Yeah. So yeah, those are just two big big things I wanted to talk about. I mean, apparently the Reddit strategy is pretty pretty tapped, but Again, you just have to go to these online forums and just really like talk with each person and try and become a member and push people to your newsletter.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that real quick. Right. So tactically, here's what Thomas would suggest to get like your first 10,000 subscribers. And he actually mentioned that like you do not need to spend money like it just comes down to a hustle thing. So here's what he suggests. Um, let's say for example, you're trying to build a newsletter focused on UFC, right? So first thing you want to do is go join every single UFC Facebook group out there, right? Create a Facebook page for your brand, friend request every single person who's active and posts in the group, send a message inviting them to your favorite Facebook page. Obviously you need to friend request them and then hit them with your content. Again, you have to do this tastefully, but it's a strategy that again, it may not scale, but you can also like do little things to to help yourself. So one example would be you just kind of copy and paste this by just hiring people on Fiverr. Um, you know, you get them on the low and they can kind of help you facilitate the strategy and kind of multipl- be a force multiplier for you. So doing yeah. that and just with enough time, you can get to 10,000 email subscribers pretty quickly. And I thought that was like really good tactical advice.
1: Great tactical advice. Great hack. I mean, that's what we're doing this podcast for is to really give people that knowledge to go out and build similar companies to the kids that we talk about or adjacent categories. So thank you, everybody, for your time. Um, I enjoyed this episode a lot. I think there was some really valuable information. Make sure to leave our future a review on Spotify or an Apple podcast, or just give us a like and a comment and a sub um, on YouTube, because that's kind of our main destination for growing the show now. So Thank you, everybody, we need for your some ratings.
0: We need some ratings right now. Things are looking yeah. a little sad on the Apple podcast rating page. If so you, uh, give
1: your voice you, some love. If you give us a review, take a screenshot of it, like in the process of giving it, and then DM us on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, info's in the show notes. And we'll give you a, a shout out on the pod. So thank you very much, guys. Stay frosty.
0: Stay frosty.
1: Peace. We had 50 people make over a million dollars a year. That's crazy. And we had two
0: people... Yeah. Make over $10 million that year, quarterback money. It's <laughs> crazy.
1: Yeah, but there's only one guy who made hundreds of millions from yeah. courses, and it's you. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.